Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. Perhaps it is not beyond our limits to live healthy and be healing ourselves and perhaps even helping our doctors learn how to become healers again. And Dr. Bernie Siegel, you are joining us today to teach us these very truths about our ability to become healers. Dr. Bernie Siegel, welcome so much. I'm so excited. My body's shaking with enthusiasm. Welcome to our show. (laughs) Thank you very much. You have so many books to offer, and the two that we're highlighting today, one of it is Books of Miracles, and the other one is Art of Healing. And if we start with the Art of Healing, I would love for the listeners to first hear what it means to become and embrace the healer inside of themselves when they're facing all sorts of health concerns. Well, I'd say one of the things I always think about is let your heart make up your mind. I mean, to well... And let me give a quote from a lawyer, because in the midst of a tragic situation, he was left with decisions to make. And he said, I came to a conclusion that was eminently reasonable, totally logical, and completely wrong, because while learning to think, I almost forgot how to feel. And so, you know, I would say to people, how do you know how to do the right thing? Pay attention to your feelings. Now... The feelings, the body as well, speak to us um, through dreams, drawings, in other words, through images. They don't, well, they can talk in a dream, but that's still a form of image. And I think that's the part people need to get in touch with, that inner wisdom. And it's not, it's separate from your intellect. And the two may or may not agree, and that's what's I'm always telling people, that's what's so vital in your life, that if there's conflict within you, uh, and that could be, who do I marry, what job do I take, where do I live, what treatment do I have for my disease? Um, if your head says, oh, this is what I better do, that's the best thing, but your intuition knows this is a mistake, this is not the right thing for you, then you're going to have all kinds of side effects, problems, emotional, physical, because of that inner conflict. But when the two agree, then there's peace with that decision. And you're not blaming yourself. You know, there's no guilt, shame, and blame, no matter what the future holds, because you know you did what's right for you. And so I will often say to people, you know, yes, I'll ask them if they had a dream, but I can also say, draw yourself. See, in all the professions you're thinking about, all the women you're thinking of marrying, you know, the places you're thinking of living. Um, And it's amazing how easy it then is to make the decision. And just to make it more concrete for people, I mean, a doctor, a future, you know, medical student can say, well, I could be a family doctor, an oncologist, um, you know, or some other specialty or a surgeon. And uh, you look at his pictures and it's very obvious which one is the warmest, 
you see. In this case, it happened to be oncologist. He's standing with his patient, with his family. They're all in the picture together, touching each other, whereas the surgeon is all covered up alone in an operating room, uh, and the family doctor has got a million thoughts in his head, you know, all the things he's got to know about the person to take care of them. So he's really not, he's in his head again, not with the patient. And uh, and I've had a lot of fun, you know, and seen a lot of wisdom in these. Uh, and I say fun because a doctor friend of mine did ask me, you know, he was talking about women in his life and uh, getting married. And I said, draw all the pictures. Um, he sent me quite a few, which surprised me. But mm-hmm. it was obvious which one was the one he really was connected with. You know, it was the warmest picture. And they're happily married many decades later um, because it was easy to point out to him, uh, this is the woman, you know, who's really uh, the match for you. And not in terms of, you know, appearances or body or whatever, um, but the one who's really connected to you. And the other thing, let me add, let me add one more thing because, I have to warn you, I never stop talking. But <laughs> Which is wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Was in the picture by the medical student, he showed himself and his wife, and he wasn't married at the time, but in the area of the page that is the future, he had put himself, wife, and three children. And years later, after they were married, he was telling me how his wife is having a lot of trouble conceiving. You know, they're having all these problems. And I said to him, I guarantee you three children. I said, I can't tell you if you're going to end up adopting, but you will have three children. And shortly thereafter, his wife delivered the first, and they now have three children. And that's the part, again, that the unconscious is creating the future, so it knows the future, literally. Jung said this many years ago. He said, the future is prepared unconsciously long in advance and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. So when you go to see a mystic, they're reading you, and that's why they know your future, because they're reading what you're creating. You're suggesting that we're a participant in our own creation, obviously. Right. How does that How does that relate to us communicating to our bodies and ourselves and to our health or even to our diseases? What does that mean well, in regard well, to you have to rea- Yeah, you have to realize that your feelings, your thoughts, create a chemistry in your body. An easy way for people to understand this is a study that was done by one of the graduate students. And um, what he did was give a man and a woman who were actors two scripts. One script was a comedy that they were to read, and the other was a tragedy where the man is the murderer of her husband, and they meet. And they're reading these, and he's drawing their blood while they're simply reading the script he gave them. But what fascinated me is it's not their life, and yet when he drew their blood in the tragic scene, the immune function goes down, stress hormone levels go up. In the comedy scene, the immune function improves and the stress hormone levels go down. And the reason I say I was impressed is this is not even their life. They're just reading words on a piece of paper. But then I began to notice the same thing happening in Broadway. You know, when you always say, if you're in death of a salesman, you don't make it through the winter. 
you end up with the flu and a you know and you have to drop out for a while but if you're in a mel brooks production you sail right through the winter with no colds or problems because you're laughing every day and again finally when doctors begin to realize these things are scientific and not Siegel's crazy thoughts, a study was done with cancer patients. Laugh for no apparent reason every few hours. And then there was a control group which, you know, just laughed if something funny happened. They were not told to do any extra laughing. And the survival statistics were better for those who laugh for no apparent reason. And I always say to people, just do it. And watch what it does to you, how you feel. I mean, my wife did stand-up comedy uh, one-liners, like a female Henny Youngman, because the audience is always predominantly women when you're talking about emotions and feelings and relationships and life. And so she would do that kind of humor. And I could see the change in the audience. Fifteen minutes of laughter, everybody's looking younger, sitting up straighter. So I didn't use it just as a break. I, I had her do it and then pointed out to people the changes in their feelings and their bodies and so forth so that they understood that the humor was not just to give you a break from my lecture but to see the effect it had on you. Hmm. And if I had to summarize, I always say to people, love your body and love your life. See, then it gets what I call a live message and does all it can to keep you healthy. It's so beautiful for now that we are can master this and, and people who buy into the authenticity of their depression or the authenticity of the the, the, the pain of their illness. What do, you, what do you say with that? They say, this is authentic. I am authentically depressed. Please empathize with that. I'm authentically anxious. Please connect with my anxiety and validate the, uh, the reason that I'm anxious. Please resonate with my illness and how serious my disease is. I don't know what you're, how you're going to react well, to that. I there say, are two, oh, yes, please. There are two aspects. One is that some people need their disease to get attention. When I say draw a picture of yourself, they draw their disease. That's who they are. And that's how they get their family to take care of them and to you know, give them time and attention. And it's sad. Um, and I point that out to them, that they don't need a disease in order to get people to do things for them and pay attention. Uh, survivors learn to ask friends and family for help and favors when they need it. They don't have to be sick to get them. You can ask for it uh, and do that. And the other is, I mean, how do you learn from your disease? Um, I tell people to give me the words that describe what they're going through. What is it like to have your disease? I'll give you an example. I mean, last week I had vertigo, everything's spinning around. I've gone through this for decades, and I know now what it's telling me. Because one day I got up out of bed and, you know, could hardly stand up, and I said, hey, you got to do what you tell people to do. What is this like? I said, gee, the world is spinning around. And then I thought, that's right. You need to take it easy. You're doing too much. And the vertigo keeps you from getting out of bed. So maybe you need to just take a rest and it doesn't have to happen to you. And I have seen this over and over again with people. Some of them will use the the disease in a positive way. Meaning, uh, as a friend of mine said to me, do you get upset when you're hungry? I said, no. 
She said, what do you do? I get something to eat. She said, okay, then ask yourself what nourishment you need. So I would say to the depressed person too, what nourishment do you need to bring into your life so you're not feeling depressed or any other symptom or problem? You know, to be able to ask for the help, that's survivor behavior too. Um, So I'm helping people to use the problem and not get depressed about being depressed. Because Siegel said it's no good for your immune system. So now I'm more depressed now that I learned that. No, what I ask you to do is stop and say, what is going on in my life? What do I need to change? Then the curse becomes a blessing. See, then the words when I say what's going on become, oh boy, it's been a wake-up call. It's been a blessing. It's been a new beginning. Because that problem has motivated them to make changes in their life. And now they're not mad at it. And one of the ways of paraphrasing that came from Joseph Campbell, uh, something that I was always saying to people. He said, when you're going through hell, ask yourself, what am I to learn from this experience? You see, then no matter what you're going through, what am I to learn from it? And it changes your reaction to the problem because then it ends up improving your life because of the changes you make. And I may add, there are many people who, when they tell me the word, just so, again, specific examples, a woman who's going to be hospitalized with a severe migraine headache, I asked her how it felt. She said, it's pressure. And then I did some work discussing pressure with her uh, because she didn't happen to be my patient. I knew she was in a lot of pain. I was just trying to help her. I was visiting another doctor friend. And... um, I worked on pressure with her in her life, and then I left, and the nurse came over to me a few minutes later and said, the pressure is her marriage, her headache's gone, she's going home to work on that. And the other was a woman who said failure, and her drawing is in my book, uh, The Art of Healing. I mean, it's a real masculine-looking figure, you know, sharp edges and everything, And uh, I said to her, because she was screaming at her plastic surgeon, and he asked me to consult with her. Uh, He said, I haven't made her ugly. I mean, she's got an incision that nobody can see unless she's in a bathing suit. Could you talk to her? I said, how do you describe what you're going through? Failure. How does that fit your life? Well, my body failed. I said, that's not my question. How does failure fit your life? Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. That transformed her life too because she was so fearful of relationships that, you know, being hurt again, that she didn't know anybody. I mean, as she said to me, I know people's names and that's where it ends. Um, But that word and my comment to her, I mean, she just started a whole new journey of transforming her life and you know, opening it to the world and other people and enjoying it. Bernie, how did you start your journey? Because your journey completely catapulted my journey um, because I was a burgeoning psychologist at the time, still training, and my mother hands me this book, book and says, you've got to read this. And I read it, I go, that's the type of doctor I'm going to be. And so I don't <laughs> succeed every day, clearly, but that is the journey that catapulted mine and many, many others. 
And I'm actually wishing that you will continue to catapult doctors who wish to be healers, yeah. but they've forgotten. They've, they're the front man for pharmaceuticals, and I love pharmaceuticals because they're amazing inventions. But these well, doctors came to be healers. Yeah. You use the key word, journey. As a matter of fact, a dying friend started calling me Journey instead of Bernie. And <laughs> I knew he, and he became my therapist, you know, with that word. But you see, I mean, there's so much. Let me take the medical aspect first, that <clears throat> from day one, I, I liked people. In other words, I became a doctor for healthy reasons, not because the human body fascinated me, but I liked people. But I wasn't trained oh. to take care of people. A sentence oh. that says it very well is, doctors are trained to treat the result and not the cause. See, you talked about depression. Um, there's an ad in a medical journal a few years ago, and I wrote to them because it said, I'm depressed, unable to cope. I went to see my physician. He prescribed an antidepressant. I feel better now. I wrote to the company. I said, excuse me. I've had a tragic event in my family. I'm depressed, and all the doctor does is hand me a pill. He doesn't even say, what's happened in your life? Can you please put that line in? And just have the doctor say, sit down and tell me what's going on and then prescribe an antidepressant and they cancel the ad. But you see, as I say, we're not taught to take care of people. I say to medical students, draw yourself working as a doctor. And I have to add that 99% of the drawings don't have a patient in the picture. It blew my my mind from this class. Some of them just showed equipment, you know, like computers and pills and things. Almost everybody in the class drew themselves sitting behind their desk with their medical school diploma on the wall and no patient in the room. One boy drew himself kneeling in front of a woman in a wheelchair with his arm around her, handing her a tissue. See, he's going to be a doctor Mm -hmm. because he understands but the others are trained to treat disease. And it took me several decades to get an answer from a dean of my medical school when I wrote to them and said, you made me into a wonderful technician, but I don't know how to take care of people or myself. And nobody answered me for about 50 years after my graduation. Yeah. Wow. And I kept sending the same letter back saying, you know, it was never answered. And they'd still not answer me. It's like I'm, you know, psychotic and neurotic and why bother to answer me? But all I was looking for was a thank you for your letter. We received it. You know, to know somebody opened it and looked at it. And that's the part that gets so tragic. You know, we're so focused on disease and we're really not trained to take care of people. I mean, a veterinarian patient of mine said it well because I said to him, See, why did I get started on my journey? I said to him, I can't take the emotional pain of being a surgeon. I mean, you know, why did God make a world like this? Why is everybody suffering, going through? He said, Bernie, what is it you're talking about? I said, I want to go to veterinary school. I think it will be easier for me to handle the animals. He said, don't. I said, what do you mean, don't? Why not? He said, people bring the pets in. And he really pointed out to me what I needed to do was treat the person. And that shift happened when I was seeking help and guidance and to help cancer patients. And sitting next to me in the audience 
at a workshop was were my patients. You see, that was an interesting phenomenon. I went. There's no desk anymore. You know, we're all sitting together. And this young woman with breast cancer said to me, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me, so I need to know how to live between office visits. That changed my life. I started helping people live. And guess what you notice? Just what you were saying before about all the different afflictions. When you help people live, they end up living longer, healthier lives because of the change that happens psychologically and physically within them. They always point out, Monday morning we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. And it ain't Monday, it's the people. (laughs) You know, and how they're feeling on the way to work. Yeah. And if we really analyzed everyone when they chose a profession, you know, not just what you wrote on your application uh, why you want to be a doctor or a plumber or whatever, but why are you choosing this profession? What are the healthy reasons? What are the unhealthy reasons? Why do you want to be a surgeon? My psychiatrist friend Carl Manninger years ago had me laughing. He said, Bernie, what if you became a surgeon as a reaction formation to your destructive tendencies? So I love telling people that. Why are you a surgeon? Because I like cutting people up, but I don't want to end up in jail, so I get paid for it. You know, they look at you and wonder if <laughs> you're kidding or not. But, um, see, you know, Kevorkian could have ended up running a hospice instead of killing people. You know, if somebody had sat him down in medical school and said, why are you choosing pathology? Why does death fascinate you so? He he might have understood himself better and then, you know, used that understanding in a healthy way. Now, I help people die. I, I don't, it's not about, I'm not talking about, you know, the problems of death, I'm, but I'm talking about helping people to die. Say, I'm not killing them. I'm helping them to turn off the life switch, uh, you know, to to end their life if they're tired of their body, fine. And not to feel guilt, shame, and blame, and, you know, what did I do wrong? I didn't love enough. I didn't get healed. Uh, there's so much guilt, shame, and blame from religions and doctors and parents and uh, that that people are just struggling with it. You, you know, as a as a a, a daughter of a, phys, a physicist from Los Alamos, New Mexico, and then became a doctor of psychology myself, I have to say that I feel guilty when I move outside the world of empirical science and move into something that feels ethereal. And yet it is the ethereal that seems to now inform the empirical world of science if that empirical world of science will actually listen. Now, the reason I say it that way is because I know you don't like to talk about the research because doctors will argue against the research and say, well, that's right. no, that doesn't sense. But can you, for a moment, because you quote wonderful resources, Lipton, Pearl, Pernias, Nabasi, just wonderful people, can you quote us? information so that our scientific empirical brain can finally get permission to the other sides of us to listen to your message. <laughs> All right. Yeah, one All right. of the things that popped into my head was, you know, how frequently I would say to people, what's happened this last year or two in your life? You know, relating it to why they might be sick at this time. And doctors would yell at me, you're blaming your patients, you see. 
And as you mentioned, if I would try to give statistics, they'd say that's a lousy journal, that's poorly controlled study. Well, let me tell you, then I'll get to a fact. Um, one of the Yale students said he would do some research on the women with breast cancer in our support group. Because when I tried to do it with the National Institutes of Health, Cancer Society, they all said, oh, you're nuts. What difference is it going to make? So we're not going to spend you know, money doing that research. Well, it's not going to cost anything. Graduate student's going to do it for his thesis. He showed a dramatic difference in the survival. What does his professor say to him? This is at Yale. His professor oh, said, this can't be true. Um, change the control group. And he changes okay. it, and it all comes out the same. But can you imagine uh, a professor saying to him, it can't be true? He didn't say it was poorly done. <laughs> you know, uh, he said it can't be true. And that's the part that people don't realize, that, you know, doctors would say to me, I can't accept that. I said, excuse me, I'm telling you the truth about a patient. What do you mean you can't accept it? And I have to say, you know, physicists and quantum uh, quantum physicists and astronomers, it's easier to talk to them because they have to deal with the unknown. You know, life is a miracle, I say. That's... You know, um, Einstein's comment, everything is a miracle or nothing. To me, everything is. Now, this first, a poem, a few lines from it, because I've often recited this. It's called Miss G, and um, the poem is about a doctor who examines a very lonely woman. And he comes home that night, sits down to dinner with his wife, and says, Dr. Thomas sat over his dinner while his wife was waiting to ring. Rolling his bread into pellets said, Cancer's a funny thing. Childless women get it, and men when they retire. It's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. And years ago, Jungian therapist Alita Evans said, Cancer is growth gone wrong, a message to take a new road in your life. Now, I always say, if the therapists, poets, novelists, songwriters put it in, they must have seen it in their life. They're not making it up. Um, so, you, But I recited that to a room full of doctors, and one of them said, just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. And everybody oh laughs. You see, then the decades go by, and somebody does a study. Loneliness affects the genes which control immune function. So suddenly it's scientific and makes sense that if you're lonely, you're more likely to develop basically every disease. And one more little study. So, you know, it's not just about people. It's about all kinds of relationships. This was done by a doctor in Australia. He, after a heart attack, he looked up the people a year later. Those who had a dog in the house had a... 6% 6% mortality rate at the end of the year after their heart attack. Those who had no dog in the house had 24% mortality rate. Now, he had a sense of humor. He said, we should get a dog for everybody in Australia, and we'd save millions and millions of dollars, you know, in health care. But again, now, see, then there are studies done that show when you pet a dog, your bonding hormones rise, oxytocin, serotonin levels go up. So again, you relate to people. And anybody with a dog knows how everybody talks to you when you take your dog for a walk. Um, So, again, all of this is scientific, but it has to be introduced early on in medical training. 
because if it isn't, as I say, that's when you get the resistance. But if all the medical students heard about it while they were in medical school, then at least their minds would be a little bit open. See, Jung interpreted a dream, must have been about 100 years ago, and diagnosed a brain tumor correctly. Now, I have never met any medical student who's ever been told that in all their years in medical school. And it should be. Because, again, when I start saying to patients, have you had a dream, do you know? Some would say, yes, I know, you know, I have cancer. I don't care what the mammogram shows. I know from my dream. Well, as a matter of fact, we have a book of miracles out that yeah. one one of the miracles, you see, is a woman who goes to bed at night. <clears throat> In her dream, a foreign woman with an accent comes into the, her bedroom and says to her, you have a lump in your right breast, you need to have it checked. She wakes up the next morning, feels her breast, and indeed there's a lump. She goes to the hospital. She's diagnosed as having breast cancer. They tell her, the doctor who will be taking care of you will be coming in in a minute. Who walks into the room? A woman, foreign accent, and the woman in her dream is her doctor. Now, how does that happen? You know, right. and but it does happen. The consciousness mm-hmm. is what transmits it. So I've now have friends who are animal intuitives, which I didn't believe in. Uh, communicating with animals, but when somebody sits in California and tells me where to find a lost pet in Connecticut, I stop doubting. See, I live by my experience. That's the way I put it to people. Live by your experience, not your beliefs, and understand there is a potential, that we have a potential built into us. So all things uh, have the ability to deal with difficulties. I always say a bacteria knows how to alter its genes and become resistant to antibiotics. Now, who taught it how to do that? Now, mm-hmm. I think they do it more easily than we do because bacteria don't have all the problems we're living with, you know. Um, but still, we have that potential. So when people find that peace, that love, it's amazing what happens in their body and why mm-hmm. I keep, you know, trying to guide people because I know it's possible. I mean, when people go home and say, I left my troubles to God, and the cancer disappears. Mm-hmm. I've had people who refused further treatment after I operated on them and said, you need more treatment. I couldn't remove all the cancer. And this was a man who had retired as a landscaper. He said, no, I'm going to go home and make the world beautiful. So when I die, I'll leave a beautiful world. He died at oh. age 94 with no sign of cancer mm-hmm. and became my teacher, you know, about appreciating and loving the world and what a gift that was. Mm-hmm. Ooh, these anecdotes are, you know, these stories, these narratives, it, 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 narratives are truly the beginning of a new consciousness. I mean, we, once upon a time, if someone had said we'd be able to create little pills that would, would make your brain change in these ways, we'd think they were crazy. And yet now we can do that pharmaceutically and we don't think it's crazy anymore. In fact, your clients have been called the crazy Bernie clients, and I think that That's right. we need to embolden doctors to become the crazy doctors, which I know you endured as well. Um, yeah. I recently me... went to a, a, just to say, I went to an appointment with uh, someone to help with a condition, and he looked at me and goes, well, you'll never recover from this. 
but here are all the medications I'm going to give you. And I'm being a conscious individual in the union, psychology, et cetera, et cetera, I felt at once depressed and drawn down and pulled into mm. the, the sadness of this forever <clears throat> decree this medical doctor had made. And then as I felt myself trying to resurrect myself from that magnetic pull, I looked at the doctor and I felt depressed and sad for the doctor that he had forgotten that his words and his action, his attitude could participate in my healing. And I know how do we as patients heal, enliven the healer, the doctor? I'm going to start carrying the art of healing by Bernie Siegel around. I handed every physician right. I meet. Uh, but how do we uh, become participants helping those that have forgotten to believe the power of this as well? Well, two things. Because um, I will tell you some stories about crazy patients, how that converted the doctors. <laughs> I mean, what I would say to your doctor, say, you'll never get rid of this disease. Say, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll bet you $10,000 that I can get rid of this disease. Okay? Or if they told you when you're going to die, you know, you have six months to live, say, okay, I'm going to live six years. I'll bet you $10,000. And the doctor says, well, it could happen. I'm not going to bet $10,000. Then why did you tell me that? See, one of our kids in an art class in school and this was no coincidence. I'm not going to get into details, but here's this 8- or 10-year-old, comes home from school with a canvas that in his art class he had written the word words all the way across his canvas, line after line, words, 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 words. And when you look at it, you realize something. The words become swords, 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 swords. Wow. So I learned when I saw that, he walked in, and I was sitting in the house, it was like, oh, wow. I can kill or cure people with my words or a scalpel. And I mean that literally. You take people's hope away, they go home, climb into bed, and die. You know? And on my website, there's an article entitled Deceiving People into Health. See, I learned to lie to people for their benefit. Yeah. Now, that may sound crazy, but, I mean, if I lied to you and it and improved your health, and reduced your pain, would you be mad at me? I doubt it. Well, and I wouldn't call you it know? a lie, would I? Yeah. No, it's not. See, really, what it was was hypnotic, yeah. But, that see, that's the part I learned as a doctor, why my words were so powerful, that I was hypnotizing people because they believed in me. I mean, a simple example, just so you understand, did a lot of children's surgery, and I would say in the emergency room to the children, when you go in the operating room, you fall asleep because I'm trying to, you know, relax them, not be afraid of pain or what's going to happen. And when we wheeled the kids into the operating room, they fell asleep, literally. And it became a joke. And everybody in the operating room would start laughing because my patients, you'd wheel them in and they would turn over, you know, and psh, they were out sleeping. And some of the kids got mad when we'd pick them up, put them on the operating table because we're waking them up and you told me I'd sleep, you know. But it... Okay. it it really showed me how powerful my words were. So again, I could take an alcohol sponge, rub your skin and say, you won't feel the needle, don't worry. And the kids were hypnotized. And they'd say, oh, that's nice. Why don't the other doctors use it? And again, you know, are they upset if I told them that I was hypnotizing them? No, I'm making them feel better. So I learned the power of my words and was very careful in using them to help people and not to cause, you know, damage. 
And the other was that nobody is against success. I did a lot of things in the hospital that seemed crazy to people, from playing music in the operating room to, you know, aromas, colors, guided imagery, all kinds of things I started doing to help people heal. But when it worked, it became hospital policy. Then I didn't need to tell anybody why it worked. And the biggest supporters were the nurses because they saw how my patients responded and they told the other doctors and it all became part of how all the patients were treated. Now, just to give an example of how much that the belief and faith can have, um, I had a father-in-law who uh, had a spinal cord injury and had nurses' aides helping him. One of the aides learned she had a cousin in North Carolina whose doctor said to her, you have cancer, you probably have a few months to live, it's not worth the trouble of going to Duke for chemotherapy, it's going to make you feel worse. Hmm. So he tells her basically, go home and you know, enjoy the last few months of your life. The nurse's aide up here said to her, come on up here, Dr. Siegel makes people better and well all the time. Come on up here. And she showed up, and that's when I learned about her. Admitted her to the hospital. Turned out she had leukemia, so I explained to her, this is not something I take care of. I'm a surgeon. I'll get somebody to see you. Now, who do I get? I get a group of oncologists who had criticized the hell out of me when I started doing support groups because I'm a surgeon. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I may make people worse. And I looked at them like, I thought you were going to, you know, told me to come to your office to tell me what a wonderful guy I am and I'm trying to help people. And here you are criticizing me. And I started laughing. And that, but that bonded us, if you know what I mean. They at least talked to me about it. So they became my oncology group that I referred people to. And I called and asked, uh, wanted them to come over and see this lady. And uh, he calls me on the phone. He says, Bernie, I agree with her doctor. There isn't much we can do for her. But, he said, I know you and your crazy patients, so I'll give her hope. And then I talked to her, gave her a big hug, told her he'd come over to see her, you know, and he starts treating her. Every week I'd get a letter from him about the treatment. Doing well, very well, incredibly well. Within two months she was in total remission, no sign of cancer. He knew, again, that it was these crazy people, you know, and it was worth the try. And she went home to drive her doctor crazy with no sign of cancer now. And the interesting thing was her comment I heard later was, Dr. Siegel sat on my bed and hugged me. I knew I'd get better. Wow. Now, that's why. If doctors were trained in communication and in caring for people, but it's painful. You know, that's why I went seeking help, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and uh, and others, because I was burying all the pain in me. See, my picture that I drew, Elizabeth's first question to me and I drew an outdoor scene from a guided imagery and she said Bernie what are you covering up I said why do you ask that she said look you made a snow I mean mountain with snow on it the page is white Bernie you don't need to pick up a white crayon and add a layer what are you covering up and she made me realize 
how much was within me. And I also remember her words, you have needs too. That you have to take care of yourself as well as just your patients and family and everything else. And she helped guide me. And then my patients started helping me. I could ask them for a hug, you know, because uh, it wasn't fun telling somebody they had cancer. So we'd hug each other and help each other. And they all knew that, that they were helping me survive, and they didn't mind, you know, because I apologized to them when I realized I was asking something of them. And they said, it's okay, we know you needed it. Oh, wow. How mutually beautiful that is. Wow. If you were to hand a protocol, <laughs> let's use that term, a protocol over to each patient and over to each doctor as to what the Bernie Siegel protocol is. I tried to outline it while I was reading all your materials and putting together what I've known over the last 40 years about your work. And and I came up with 16 different things a patient should do, and I laughed at myself. So I realized I'm trying to come up with a, a protocol that guides people who otherwise would feel confused or ridiculous or not trusting their kind of flow or go with the inner consciousness. So what would be a protocol, or what do you think of the idea? Well, oh, there is. I mean, what I'm always saying is when you go to the doctor, the doctor ought to say to you, here is behavior that people who have exceeded expectations have done. So read this list and then try to be what they're like. I I say always rehearse and practice because if you think of yourself as an actor, as a performer, you rehearse and practice and try to become the person you want to be. And you don't get upset with yourself. Another one of my comments is you're like a, a work of art, a painting. You don't throw it out if it doesn't look right. You retouch it. And that's one of my patients wrote that. She said... There's more color on the palette. The canvas is not finished. So she's reworking herself in her life, and that's what people need to do. But also on my website, which is Bernie Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L-M-D.com, there's something called an immune-competent personality put together by psychiatrist George Solomon when he was dealing with AIDS patients. Now, he's not the first one. Um, there was a psychologist, Bruno Klopfer, many decades ago, he could, and he was given about two dozen personality profiles of patients and correctly predicted who would be a long-term survivor with a slow-growing cancer and who would have a rapidly growing cancer from their personalities. And he did it correctly like 21 out of 24 times. Um, so, And many psychiatrists have written books. Uh, get it, what, let me think. Um, yeah, You Can Fight for Your Life by Psychologists. Um, the Will to Live. You see, they were seeing it more than the surgeon, oncologist, internist, doctor, because people came to them, they helped them straighten out their lives, and then they saw the derived benefits. Uh, again, psychiatrist, um, oh, Walter, uh, not Walter, he's uh, a friend of mine, but Carl Menninger, um, he was sent my first book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles. I wanted his comments. He wrote back saying, Bernie, I was about to write a book called Ten Hopeless Cases. These are ten people who are supposed to be dead or alive and well today. He said, I'm not going to write it, though, because you just did. 
Mm. You see, now that's what woke me up. The psychiatrists were aware of all this. But when you sent them an article of mine to publish, they wrote back saying, this is appropriate for our journal, but it isn't interesting to us. When I sent it to medical journals, the same article came back saying, it's interesting, but it's not appropriate. That's the trouble with medicine. I always say, it's like if an electrician's in your house, you don't ask him about plumbing problems. And so the doctors, we become so specialized, we're not taking care of the person, the whole entity. You know, we're taking care, again, of the disease, you know, of the plumbing, of the wiring, and not of the person. So just briefly, to give you that list of immune-competent personality, is to have a sense of meaning in my relationships and daily activities. Um, can I express anger appropriately in defense of myself? Can I ask friends and family for favors uh, when I need them? Um, can I use depression so that the way I said before, like hunger, to seek support and nourishment in my life? Do I make the decisions about my treatment? Do I have play in my life? And to me, that definition is find your chocolate ice cream and do it. Because if it makes you lose track of time, something creative, something meaningful, then it is therapeutic to you and the world. Um, what else? Do, do I have a role in my life to the detriment of my own needs? I meet men who say, I can't work, what's the point of living? I meet women who die because all the kids left home. Hey, how about your own life, you see? So it's all those aspects that become a part of survival. And uh, I try to help people become a survivor. My therapy I labeled carefrontation years ago because people knew I cared, but I confronted them. The, I didn't say, let them act like a victim and uh, just you know sit there nodding my head and saying, yeah, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. No, I would confront them and say, hey, you've got potential. See, but even the sad part, to get back to the drawings again for a minute, a woman with cancer came in, handed me a drawing, at the bottom, it said, I had my 10-year-old son draw this because I'm not good at drawing. That's the part that would blow my mind. Lady, yeah. you're trying to get over cancer, and you're afraid to draw a picture because you're not an artist? I mean, oh, but the fear, and that's how you're brought up. The biggest public health issue, I'm always saying, is parenting. You bring up kids to feel loved. They take care of themselves. I mean, to give you a statistic, again, a study. Harvard students were asked, did your parents love you? If they said no, by middle age, 98% had suffered a major illness. <clears throat> if they said yes, 24% had suffered a major illness. So I learned, and basically from my patients, to reparent them, to become their parent. Let them know I love them. And, and then I saw them begin to take care of themselves. And what I mean, again, on a practical level, somebody doesn't fill prescriptions, doesn't take your advice, uh, and, you know, what do most doctors do? The opposite of love, indifference, rejection, abuse. You know, what's the point of your coming back? You're not doing anything I asked you to do. So I would always tell people to come back. And they'd look at me like, you're not going to tell me not to like the other doctors? See you in two weeks. 
And I would keep it up for months. And what happened? I suddenly would notice they're starting to take care of themselves because it got through to them. They're worth something. This guy is caring about me, so I must be worth something. And then they began to take care of themselves. You you mentioned something related to this. When I have a quote on my Facebook that says, "If I was meant to be controlled, I would have come with a remote control." And mm. I, I get the impression that you don't want the patients to feel like the doctor has their remote control, nor do you want other people in their past to have the control of their life. But what does it mean to dip into yourself and your body and your illness and your health? What does it mean to have that internal communication? Well, you're coming up with wonderful words. Because I asked God one day, I said, what's life all about? What's going on here? I need your help. I need to understand. And God said, Bernie, you're a satellite dish, a remote control, and a television screen. And I said, I don't understand your parables. Can you explain that, please? And God said, look... You have many channels out there open to you. You have to decide which channel do you want to choose and observe and live by. So I give you a mind, a brain, to pick and select like a remote control on your television. And then I give you a body like the television screen to demonstrate your channel that you're tuned into. In a sense, you're demonstrating who and what is your Lord And if you pick the right Lord, then wonderful things are going to happen. And I mean that, again, to refer back to that Mm. book of miracles. As I was reading it, and just so people know, this is not just about health. This is about all kinds of, you know, so-called amazing coincidences that happen in people's lives. But when did it happen? See, as I'm looking at that book and their stories, I thought it's when they chose life. See, I place before you life and death, good and evil. Choose life. What does choosing life mean? You're choosing what is life-enhancing for you and also for everybody else who has a relationship with you. See, it's not you being selfish, what's good for my business, my health, but it's what's good for the world and my customers and my family. And when you make those kinds of choices then you can experience those miracles because the coincidences start happening. The people, the treatments, whatever is your issue, uh, the solution appears, and it's amazing. So if we take that beautiful message, and and let's pretend, Bernie, that you're in front of an audience of medical doctors, like you have often been, and you know that it's your job to invigorate inside of them the healer that they were once called to be. And how would you inspire them and also the following, teach them how to take care of themselves? Because I know, Bernie, you must be exhausting yourself with all these interviews and treatment. You're one human being. And these doctors sit there and they're one human being and almost afraid to open themselves up to the pain and the neediness of their patients. And therefore... They give them a prescription because that keeps them safe and not drained. So how well, do you invigorate them? How do you help them keep the boundaries? I you know, remind them what the patient said to me, help them to live between office visits. 
not just focus on the disease. If I were running medical schools, I wouldn't let anybody graduate without being a patient. I mean, they don't have to be sick, but I'd put them in bed in the hospital where they weren't known and let them lie there for a week and understand. You see, so they're not tourists anymore. They become natives. Um, as a matter of fact, the term in Solzhenitsyn's book, Cancer Ward, what, what doctors need to do and teach their patients, he talks about self-induced healing fluttering out of the book that one of the men is reading and comes across that term. Self-induced healing is a rainbow-colored butterfly. See, what fascinated me is Solzhenitsyn didn't use the doctor term, spontaneous remission or miracle. He said self-induced. And that's what doctors need to be taught, that healing is not spontaneous. It's self-induced. It's what's going on in the patient. So, again, learn from success. Learn from the patients who do well. Treat their experience. Help them to heal and also to heal yourself, that it's okay for you to ask for a hug from your patients and, and to treat them. And what I did, and I tell doctors to do, put your desk against the wall. Do not separate yourself from people. So it's not, oh, I'm invulnerable. See, I'm on the other side of the desk. Never going to happen to me. I mean, the suicide rate in doctors is higher than the general population. Because, yep. again, when we have meetings, it's, what do you think? See, how can we classify this death? What is the complication due to? How can we avoid it in the future? And I would often raise my hand and say, can I tell you how I feel? And the chief of surgery knew I was being a pain in the butt and would say, Siegel, sit down. But that should be a part of the meaning, you know, to mm -hmm. the doctor. How are you feeling? How are you doing? Mm -hmm. See, even the symbolism, that, con that conference was called Morbidity and Mortality Conference. So wow. we could learn from our mistakes and patients who died and everything else. But the expression that was used to discuss it was, hey, you go into Black Book Conference? That's what it was called, say, Black Book. Black. And black, yeah. The, every color has mm. meaning. And that's mm. uh, not, a you know, the depression, mm. all the negative feelings. Yeah, the Black Book Conference. And so, again... I, I saw ahead. you entering into the conference in my mind with you wearing a rainbow-colored suit and blowing them all away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know Go what ahead. I did? When I saw people what? at the hospital acting in a caring way, I would go up to them and in a gruff voice say, what's your name? And they would look at me like, what the hell did I do? You know? <laughs> and they would tell me their name because they don't say – but then one woman one morning, a secretary – when I said to her, what's your name? She said, why do you want to know? And I burst out laughing. I said, you're the only one with enough courage to ask. But I said, I want to get you a gift because you have such a wonderful effect on people. And what I gave all of them, see why they want their name, I gave them a pin with a rainbow in the background and their name printed across it that they could oh wear in the goodness. hospital. And and I always said it created a subversive organization in the hospital. See, because if you pass somebody in the hall with it, you knew, hey, there's one from Siegel. There's another good soul. And and it, it just helped people to realize. And, I mean, the, that one secretary taught me a lot, too, because she said, when I took the job, I hated it. I couldn't stand the doctors and nurses. So I gave them two weeks' notice. And... I got up every day miserable for two weeks, but the last day I got up happy, I came to work happy. 
and I realized everybody around me was happy now, so I didn't quit. I decided to come in happy. And that's what I always share with people. You change your life or your attitude. Either one will work. And, uh, you know, if you don't like being a doctor, okay. You know, you can become a plumber. I don't care. But you're still going to meet people. See, that's what doctors and plumbers and all these other people don't understand. We meet people. So choose your way of giving love to the world. One of our sons ran a Subway franchise. I loved working there. I mean, (laughs) I laughed because I had a knife and gloves like in the operating room. But when people came in and said, I'd like a sandwich, please, I'd say, you answer my question, I'll give you a sandwich. What's your question? How do you introduce yourself to God? What's the best day of your life? Who can you hate? What is evil? I mean, we'd get into all of these. Did your parents love you? All these questions. And I'm literally, therapy went on in Subway. Because people would hear, you know, the next customer's question and not agree or agree and start talking to them. And they'd sit in the booth together and the people just sat there. You know, it wasn't just about eating. It became therapy. And I realized, as I say, that all you need to do is find a way to meet people and you can improve the world. And I like learning from those who are wounded, you know, like Helen Keller and others that just keep teaching me. You know, if you face the sunshine, you never see the shadows. But if you turn around, all you ever see is a shadow. So I learn from those who have wounds. And I'll tell you another way for doctors to be better doctors. I was poked in the back at Stop and Shop by a lady who said, you're the only person in Stop and Shop who hasn't asked me what happened. That impressed me because she had a bandage over her eye. See, she's a visibly wounded soul, and everybody's talking to her. And if doctors would show their wounds, their patients, and they would become more family and team uh, helping each other. And I think if every doctor went in with a bandage on their body or over their eye or whatever, the patients would talk to them in a totally different way. And I have to give you one more quote. I don't know if we're running out of time, but... This was um, the um, Thornton Wilder in the pool of Bethesda. An angel comes to this pool, and when people go in, the angel stirs the water, and they're all healed of their afflictions. And the doctor, who's got lots of troubles, goes there every day. And one day, ah, the angel's here. And he heads for the water, and the angel steps in front of him and says, not you, draw back. And the doctor says, why, because I'm a doctor? No, Without your wound, where would your power be? It's your melancholy that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love service, only the wounded soldier can serve. Draw back. And on the way home, the doctor sees lots of doors of houses open as he's walking down the street and people start yelling, come in here, our daughter sits in the dark, won't talk to anybody but you. Come in here, our son locks himself in his bedroom and he won't come out until you're, you come into the house. And he realizes how effective he is as a doctor because of his wounds and his pain. And that's why I say I learn from the wounded. They become my teachers. Is how they survive and make it through the day. And it's not bad to start the day, which I do with a mantra, either be grateful for things or just say positive statements like a little ritual to 
to refocus your mind on what you're grateful for and not what's wrong. And you speak from the human depth of interacting with real life. So, wow, Bernie, that's beautiful. Can I ask one yeah. more question? I'm dying. Oh, sure. <laughs> you had you had a near death experience when you were quite oh, yeah. young. I had an out of body experience during my tonsillectomy at age five. That experience must have changed yours. I know mine did mine. What did you experience in that near death moment, and and what did you bring back from it? Well, just so people know, I I was imitating carpenters in our house who had put nails in their mouth in those days and were taking them out, you know, and hammering. So I took a toy telephone apart, put the pieces in my mouth, and aspirated them and and couldn't breathe, and it was so painful. Ah. And I was just thrilled, I mean, because here I went from the pain of trying to breathe and nothing, and suddenly I was free. I had no pain. I was feeling Mm -hmm. fine. It's interesting to me that I knew I wasn't that I wasn't dying. I don't know how it's how to put that into words, but it's like there was another guy on the bed, another kid. He was dying, not me. You know, the body was dying, not me. And I could see, I could think, I had questions in my mind. But again, I'm four years old. It didn't occur to me this is really weird. This is strange. Uh, you should tell people about it. I thought this is normal. Um, and I really remember deciding I prefer being dead. I'm sorry my parents will find me dead. I, I did, you know, go over that. I said, do you want to live? I said, no, I want to be dead. This is more interesting than being alive. I'm sorry wow. I'll make my parents upset. Um, and then the other thing that happened was the kid on the bed, see, I always refer to him as somebody else, the kid on the bed had a seizure and vomited, and it dislodged all these pieces, and he took a breath again, and I was whammo, like a vacuum cleaner is the way I describe it, sucked back in. And my feeling then was there's a God. You know, there's a schedule, and I'm not supposed to be dead now. So, you know, don't get angry, though the first words I said when I took a breath was, who did that? And then I thought, well, it's God who did it. You wanted to be dead, but that's not God's schedule for you. There's a life you have to live. And so it's always been a part of me. And as I said, to me, it just seemed perfectly normal. I didn't tell my mother what a fascinating experience I had because I thought everybody must know about this. You know, it happens to everybody. So you don't have to talk about it or tell your parents. They must already know. And it just was a part of me for my life. And, uh, you know, until you learn that it's not a normal activity that everybody believes in, um, but something special. And then I used to ask my patients those questions. And again, if they didn't feel safe, they would always say, no, 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 I've never had that, no, no. But once they knew I wasn't normal, (laughs) then they would start telling me, you know, that, yes, I had a near-death experience. I was out of my body while... You were all resuscitating me. And his wife, this one man who, as a matter of fact, he was blind too. So you see when you leave your body, um, even if you're born blind. But he was saying, yes, yes, I was out of my body. I saw it was happening. And his wife said, honey, that's insane. That's crazy. He said, oh, yeah, you got a green dress on and you were sitting in the corner of the room to be out, you know, where they told you to be out of the way. 
and the doctor's pen fell out of his pocket and it's under the bed. If you look there, you'll find it for him. And, you know, those kinds of details. And his wife was just like, <laughs> I mean, she couldn't deny that her blind husband uh, was seeing. And those are the things that are so fascinating. And to me, again, we're here to go to school. And the school is to raise our level of consciousness so that the, our consciousness will go forward into the future, what we refer to as uh, past lives kind of thing, that we're carrying the, the life experience of someone who preceded us. And it doesn't have to be us, if you know what I mean, that, it's, that we pick it up, so to speak, you know, like the satellite dish, and we bring it with us. And so it affects our life and our wisdom. And if we'd all become more loving and wiser about life and tolerating each other, then the future will be a hell of a lot better place, uh, you know, not with war and killing and uh, everybody having reasons to blame everybody else. Uh, we'd all be one family and uh, understand that. And as a surgeon, I always sum it up with we're all the same color inside. You know, we're really all one family. And the kids intuitively understand that. If you say yes. to a classroom of third graders, where are we all alike? I have a picture of one of you and you can't tell who it is. They point to their hearts and their chests. But you say that to a group of adults. I had a uh -huh. black minister with me one day and we were in front of a, some of his friends. And I said, I have a picture of one of us. You can't tell who it is. What, what's it a picture of? And they looked at me like I was out of my mind. He's black, you're white. What the hell are you talking about? But I know uh -huh. this minister friend, and he looked at them and then pointed at his heart. And I said, yeah. Oh, my Yeah, and that's heart what we're all alike. Oh, my gosh. That, that is beautiful. But I could say, give us your last parting message, but it doesn't end, does it, Dr. Bernie Siegel? So no, the, to me... Be inspired by them daily, but go ahead. Yeah. I always say that we run out of time. So enjoy your lifetime because you do make a difference in the future. Whew. Thank you so much for making a difference in my life. And by the way, people contacted me and said, oh, he made such a difference in my life. And they go on and on. I thought, oh, my goodness. Well, tell you them. You know that as well. <laughs> to you, too. I don't make the difference. I mean, mm -hmm. two terms I often use are life coach and love warrior. See, mm -hmm. you show up for practice, so you give me credit for coaching you. But if you didn't show up for practice, it doesn't matter what I know or do. And the other was what I call the love warrior, that you use love as your weapon, and it makes such a difference. Absolutely. People don't know what to do with you. <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, Coach Bernie Siegel, <laughs> thank, thank you, you so much. And I just hope Bless that you. you feel the healing love that all of us send you as you, you trudge through your life as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, I yes. need that keep my battery charged too, so thank you. <sighs> yes. All right. Be well, everybody. Embrace it. Embrace Bernie. Embrace each other. Because after all, life is short. Might as well do it well. Take care. Bye. Thank you, Kara. Bye-bye.
Thank you.